the pursuit of wild game is eternal. Whether it's countless hours studying topo maps or planting food plots in the summer, there is no off-season. So super excited for today's episode. We have Marcus Lashley. Marcus is a professor at the University of Florida, as well as the director of the UF Deer Lab. Marcus is just an overall wealth of knowledge when it comes to the white-tailed deer, as well as overall habitat management. Today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about deer and hogs and their antagonistic relationship. We're going to talk about the rut in Florida, and if anybody has hunted in Florida, you'll understand that it is all over the place. It's from June all the way to January, just kind of all over the place. We're also going to talk about predators, specifically the Florida panther, and kind of what that does to deer movement as well as GPS collared deer, as well as CWD. So thank you guys for listening. Going to have a lot of information, so hopefully you guys uh, find some value in today's episode. This episode of the What Off Season podcast is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Rec Broadheads, which are proudly made here in the USA. Founded and operated by a father and son duo whose passion for archery pushed them to design and manufacture a more reliable broadhead. From their patented spring lock technology in their fixed to expandable modular platform, they simply produce results when failure isn't an option. Rec Broadheads is offering listeners of the show 15% off when using code WHATOFFSEASON15. That is in all caps. So WHATOFFSEASON15. So check them out at recbroadheads.com. That's R-E-K broadheads.com and all your favorite social media platforms. Today, I'm Marcus Lashley, who is the director of the UF Deer Lab, as well as a uh, professor, right, at University of Florida? That's correct, yep. Awesome. Marcus, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, as you said, I'm Marcus Lashley. I've been faculty uh, professor at UF for a little over three years now, and uh, direct the UF Deer Lab, which includes as you might expect, a lot of work on white-tailed deer, but also do uh, quite a bit on other game species, especially wild turkey. So <clears throat> a lot of habitat-focused work in particular, but uh, you know, I, I don't like to bind, bound myself within a particular topic because we do work on a lot of different aspects of, of game ecology with a lot of species. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to it, the habitat is the most important thing of what affects all game, right? You know, food, you know, bedding, every everything that you can really put into it. So that that makes sense. So where were you at before uh, before joining Florida? Have you always been in the state? No, uh, I was a let's see, a, I was a faculty member before here for four years at Mississippi State University, and I was a habitat specialist in the MSU Deer Lab. And the idea was uh, <clears throat> that I'd come here and, and make a program very similar to what we had done in the MSU Deer Lab. So, yeah, which is a great, the MSU Deer Lab is a great, you know, just wealth of knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah and those you guys, guys work still work there. really closely with those guys uh, all the time. But, uh, yeah, that that kind of led me to here. And that was what the University of Florida wanted was to hire someone that could bring a game focus to our university. 
So I got to ask, are you a Gator fan? I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big Gator. We got a big game this week, so we're gonna. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. You know, against, against Utah, I, I don't think. Uh, I don't think people realize how good Utah is, so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Well, I, I grew up in Alabama, and I was a big time Auburn fan. My all of my family is, and uh, I kind of slowly transitioned into a an SEC fan. Okay. But, because I've bounced around to so many universities, you know, it's hard to, <laughs> it's t- hard to yeah. affiliate with just one, uh, now that I've gotten degrees at multiple universities and worked for several. And so, so yeah, I mean, you know, with, with that research that you guys are doing on, you know, on so much different game, um, you know, when it comes to the white tail deer, you know, what are some things that you're noticing that might be, you know, either a, like the biggest factors, against you know that i guess the for the trajectory of white-tailed deer in florida right like what are some things that you're seeing that are you know inhibiting you know the real real future growth or something that us as hunters that we need to be really mindful on yeah that's a it's a broad question uh yeah a good one it you know deer in florida are really interesting it you know uh, the audience probably knows very well and you may even have experienced as hunters that uh the the breeding cycle in florida is all over the place and and, uh, i mean literally like almost every month there's peak breeding and so somewhere in the state so that that makes a real challenge to manage the species at that scale right yeah uh something that i have been working on quite a bit and I talk to landowners all the time is is uh, the role that fire has to play in our state. We're, we're the fire capital of the world. We light more prescribed fire per capita than anywhere else. And that's, there's really important reasons for that. And one thing that's important to a lot of landowners is how important fire is for the general nutrition and, and habitat quality of deer in the state. So mo- most parts of the state are relatively poor soil productivity. Yeah. And a lot of my work has been demonstrating that fire causes, because of the way it affects vegetation and the re-sprouting vegetation that comes back, uh, causes a this exaggerated pulse and nutritional quality of plants if it's timed appropriately. And in this state, you know what is timed appropriately for deer varies widely because it depends on when peak lactation and antler growth is so you know that's one thing i, I see as a way that we could really start to advance our management of deer is to start thinking about how we can incorporate fire at a broad broader scale you know it's a really effective tool that can be used at lots of different uh spatial scales uh that that tool and getting creative and <clears throat> the way that we apply it to maximize the benefits for deer i think that's an yeah. area that we can really move forward yeah that's 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 interesting yeah i mean since you said the rut that time right I, i've always explained to everybody florida is the most unique place to hunt deer uh and, you know, I've hunted a lot of places and, and gone all over the country. And I, I tell everybody, if you can be successful in Florida killing mature deer, 
mm-hmm. you can be successful anywhere. And uh, maybe maybe that's me because I'm from here. You know, but our you know our topography places too, including Florida, and I, I I agree with you. It's it's a challenge to get on a mature buck here. Yeah, you know, and the topography is so different. You know, you got go you go out towards the Panhandle and you start to get like those you just, that Sneeds area and you start to get to hills, mm-hmm. and then you go down south and it's all you know Palmetto flat, and then you got some of the public land that I hunt here is darn near the salt marsh, and I'm catching them going at low tide from one island to the other island to the other island to the mainland, you know. So with that being said, you know, I mean, you know, I live in St. Johns County, and I hunt Nassau County. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a 45-minute difference. The deer are running in full hardhorned at my house sometimes in mid-July, and they're not hardhorned in the hunting club normally in 45 minutes north until – first week of September. Yeah. So 45 minutes in the proximity to the oceans, the same. Yeah. So what are some of the factors? You know, you go down South and they've been hard horn and rutting since April. I feel like May, I feel like, you know what I mean? So what, you know, what are some of the things that you see are, are kind of affecting why we have such a wide range? Yeah, that that's a really good question. If you said those dates, any of those that you just said to anybody that's not familiar with Florida, they'd be like, "Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Rutting in April or in yeah. July? You know that that is starkly different than anywhere else in the range of white yeah. trout, and so much so that people don't believe it. <laughs> I've told right? them, they're like, "Wait, what?" Uh, so there, there's a lot of things that dictate when uh, the rut occurs. But the primary thing is really about uh, when resources are available. Normally, when, when somebody says resource, they think food. That's what most people think about. But if you get down into some of those parts of the range in South Florida, it's really not, that's not the resource that's, that's bottlenecking at, you know, during fawning. It's, it's dry land so that they don't drown. So uh, really what is driving the, you know, at a broader scale with the species, what's driving, um, breeding is when there's a concentration of a resource in that case it's particularly stark that it is dry land and and uh we can see that really well but uh, in other places you know it often is related to to food and there's actually some really interesting patterns if you if you look across the latitudinal gradient of deer the synchrony of of breeding tends to uh, become more synchronous as you move north and i'm talking about all the way up to canada you know we're we're talking about a large latitudinal gradient and the the idea there is it's really important to be more synchronized when you have a really short window of resource availability and we get down into the south florida's probably the best example of this where race there you know we have a long growing season and that synchrony of resources isn't quite as stringent as it is in other places and we tend to have a more protracted breeding season gotcha Uh, 
the other thing that has happened, and uh, this is evident across the South, if you look at that spatial scale really well, is we've moved deer uh, during restocking efforts quite a bit. And uh, some of the work, there hasn't been genetic work in this state uh, directly, I don't think, but uh, there has been across some of the other southern states showing that some of the variation that you see over short distances is being generated by local uh, genetic holdover. So that's uh, another thing that's probably influencing it. Another one that I have worked on and, and we haven't gotten to the a level of certainty whether it goes beyond a hypothesis. Uh, but if you look in Florida and start thinking about, okay, what is causing a, you know, a pulse in resources, and I just mentioned earlier the fire, if you look at nature and when nature burns at different in different parts of the state, it actually aligns pretty well with when, you know, or we see we see some of the populations, the uh, deer population synchronizes around green up like where you just really get yeah. a big pulse in green up and then some parts of the state it's delayed a couple of months later than that yeah and it's sort of the sliding gradient across the state and uh if you look at those places where uh where it's not aligned with just green up then those are areas that tend to get a lot of lightning generated fire or, gotcha. or and, that, and yeah. that is after green up you know it's later in the, the year you know that's just a hypothesis but it's starting you know when you start looking at it at that scale it starts to make sense that yeah very much so does in our coastal plain you know the, where it's really poor soil productivity for deer and before we had food plots and feeders and all the other forms of nutrition that we provide all the time it would have been pretty important in nature for deer to synchronize fawning when you were going to be sure to have this really big pulse and nutrient availability because you know it's just poor in general so yeah. so they're you know the that's a convoluted way to basically say there are a lot of influential factors but it really is about what is maximizing the success of of fawning like you know the the fawns being born and, and surviving and that generally yeah. we generally have a longer breeding season in the south because it's not as strong of a threat in terms of synchronizing with nutrition uh, but in some cases like south florida where it is a really big problem to be born at the wrong time then you, yeah. you see it more synchronizing even at a weird time of the year uh, because of the re the resource with dry land there so then, and then, you know, when you look at that, I mean, how long, I mean, I, from what I've read, does, you know, deer carry their fawns almost as long as a person, right? How, how many, how many days or is it? About 200 so, days, give or take, usually wow. give or take about 10. So I would assume like, with that being said, you know, that gradual change, say it was early, you know, we'll just say here, for example, early September and then gradually start to move a little bit further back that probably take say it were to be into September that probably takes years for those for that to come into effect right uh you, you mean like the local variation yeah. like yeah 
so well that's that's interesting um you know some of the restocking efforts that we see remnants of the change in breeding dates in a really small area uh those yeah. have been around for decades we still see the genetic influence uh you know where you know you know uh if you go into alabama and you look at right on one side of the river where we had some restocked herds and then compare that to the other side of the river right in georgia you can almost throw a stone over the river to the other population they're two months different uh wow. so yeah it's like i was talking to one of the biologists you know we're gonna go to alabama in january this year to hunt yeah. And I was talking to one of the biologists out there and he was like, you know, the rut used to be that magical time that you guys are planning on being here. And it was, you know, mid January. And he's like, lately we've started to see like over the last probably five, six years, we've started to see it gradually push more towards the end of January. Yeah. You know, which is interesting. So, uh, well, we'll talk about some approximate and ultimate things, uh, that are going on, but, uh, my my point is that from a genetic standpoint, that that could that holdover is pretty uh, ingrained gotcha. genetically to the extent. I mean, the the male is going to breed a female when she comes into estrus, and but the estrus itself is being initiated by by a change in photo period. So basically, so nothing to do with the moon phase. Right. Not, not in, not <laughs> in and that, you know, we can actually impact that a little bit because most people don't know why we know that so definitively. Uh, it's actually really cool to some of the experiments that were done to demonstrate that it is specifically the change in day length. Now, what the cue is in a particular population and, you know, what that population has developed its adaptations to achieve you know what day length that is for that particular population might be slightly different in this variation like obviously the change in day length that september is not the same as january but yeah. uh the local populations are synchronizing to when they need to have their phones born and it's apparently over a long period of time but we've we've had some really really awesome experiments where we have taken deer literally put them on a boat and took them to the exact same latitude in in the global south. Uh, I don't recall where it was, but we basically moved deer from their latitude in the northern hemisphere to the same latitude in the southern hemisphere, and they will their estrus within a year will flip to exactly six months opposite. That is crazy. So we know that it's not just changing day length; it's specifically how the length of day is changing. So it's going from from longer to shorter specifically uh, for wow. most populations. But the, you know, like that's a definitive thing. We've also had experiments where we put deer into a room essentially where we can control the light. Yeah. And then we can tinker with the light and cause them to go into estrus based on that the photo period. So that's the that's the ultimate thing that is regulating the initiation of estrus that is crazy so then we have proximate things that that are also influencing it so like we were talking about the local population like in south florida the way that 
you know, the cue for the animal, the proc the uh, ultimate cue is the day length, but what the actual cue is, like what that day length change looks like for that specific population is different than it is yeah. in other populations. So that that is like a long term long term genetic thing that's ingrained in the population and it takes a long time for it to to go away or change. Yeah. And it has to be really strong selection against being born at a particular time for that to go away. And when in the South, we just don't usually have very strong cues. So we see these populations where we moved deer, you know, they're still holding over some of that genetic influence for, you know, literally decades and decades because we don't, it's not that big of a deal in Alabama if you're born in June or August, right? You're still yeah. you're relatively successful. Uh, so it's not as strong of a, a problem. If we did the same thing in Canada, that that would probably not, that holdover would not last very long because it's a big yeah. problem if you're born at the wrong time when you have an extreme winter. You, know, you think of it, you know, I would never thought the resource, you know, being as much as, you yeah. know, just where they can even have a fawn for success. Right. So you know? and think, I mean, yeah, and you think about that cue, like that is a, you know, that cue is something that is so consistent over such a long duration that it's safe for species to have that as a cue to initiate something important like that. So that's yeah. a lot of and a lot of species that the cue is something to do with changing light uh, because that's just been so consistent for so long. Uh, but to go back to some other proximate things, there are also things going on within herds that can influence what you're perceiving. So like the age structure and the sex ratio of the herd itself can influence what you are seeing and also the nutritional uh the nutritional condition of the herd influences it so we've seen in a couple of studies where we improve the nutrition and you tend to see the initiation of estrus uh become a little bit earlier the same thing presumably would happen if you went from a really high quality environment and it degraded over time you should see it shift later and we're normally talking about weeks you know like a week or two yeah uh, you could see the initiation of estrus change the data on that is not nearly as good as as the changing day length stuff uh, where we have yeah. really good experiments that are definitive uh, but they are that is suggested that uh, if you change the nutritional quality you can kind of maneuver when that initiation starts uh, the other yeah thing that happens is that when you have a sex race or a, an age structure that is skewed to young males and you have a sex ratio that's highly skewed to females which is pretty much wherever you want to point in the south on the map yeah uh, you can end up with multiple cycles of estrus if female does not uh, initiate you know, or, or uh, conceive in the first estrus cycle, she can recycle and she could do that multiple times. So what essentially that means is 28 day delay on when, you know, conception is, which you 
you know, most people perceive that as, oh, we have a second rut. So that, you know, that that is true that some of the females fail to conceive and then, uh, you know, they go into estrus a second time. Another yeah. thing can happen, and this is actually kind of on the other side of the spectrum, is when the resources are really good and you have some early born fawns, those fawns could initiate estrus in the first year. So wow. That, you know, that's crazy. So yeah, because like they tend to be yeah. later in the year than the the adult females. Yeah, and I've always said it, and you know, it's my thought because I'm not a biologist by any means. I'm just a hunter, and things that I've seen, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you you go and you see all these videos, and you go hunt other places, and you know, I got to experience the rut in the you know in the Midwest last year, and it was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was just bonkers. Deer acting silly. You know, you could rattle horns and. A deer comes from, you know, 500 yards away and he comes in, you know, I actually got to watch a deer breed a doe. And that was, that was one of the coolest things. Stuff you just don't get to see, right? Uh, I've always said like the reason why some of that rutting activity that you see where the deer just get super, the bucks get super aggressive that we don't necessarily see in Florida is because our doe to buck ratio is so out of whack. Is there any validity? That's my thought. And I could be totally wrong is there validity to that you think well there is some yeah the so if you have a a poor sex ratio which we tend to have in the south uh you know the the breeding intensity is it's not as synchronized and concentrated and that that's kind of a pillar of the you know one of the things that the quality deer management or i guess now the national deer association but the quality deer management philosophy originally uh, that was one of the benefits that they thought you would see if you got aggressive at a large enough property level uh, that you would see more synchronized and intense rutting behavior yeah um, so that there's some truth to that another thing that probably people don't think about as much is it's really hot in Florida especially in some parts of the range and yeah, you know, uh, a lot of the rutting activity is probably happening at night because it's a cooler and yeah. environment to happen in, which is also yeah. uh, something that, you know, with high hunting pressure, you tend to see animals become more nocturnal anyway. Yeah. A stark difference in that, though, is anywhere where the Florida panther is, uh, the deer are almost completely diurnal, so they are active primarily in the day. Because really? because the major predator is nocturnal, and that is another thing that's really wild in Florida that you don't see anywhere. I've never seen another data set as good or demonstrating as dramatically the role that a predator can play. Is that because the you can do a better research? I'd say more controlled research because. The Florida Panthers region right now is so secluded in such a small area. I mean, it'd be it's I don't want to say it's easy by any means because it's not. But like when you look at the Florida Panther in Florida, you know, south, you know, the very south, whereas you say you look at Montana, there's mountain lions everywhere. So that overall control base is a lot smaller to be able to help manage kind of that effect. Yeah, well, they're. One thing is the concentrated space, but another thing is the the risk to the species, you know, the risk of a Florida panther to the average deer and a deer herd down there 
is much higher than the risk to a mountain lion in Montana. Like everything, yeah. Montana is trying to eat deer. Like they got <laughs> <That's right>. things. <clears throat> they got wolves. They got bears. They got everything. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that's one thing that's certainly influencing that. Uh, but the other thing is the the Florida panthers are so nocturnal. You know, like they're they're so effective at hunting at night uh, that that's probably <clears throat> driving a, a stronger response. And I've never seen anywhere else where the the predator like that was driving the majority of the risk was nocturnal for deer. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're that's just not that common. But I, yeah. I'm not, aware of any other population where we have demonstrated that the deer are literally using you know on their feet mostly day during the day yeah that's crazy which now, is actually you know the panther's kind of doing us a solid <laughs> on that front right at the hunter i'm like dang i need to go down south yeah the problem <laughs> further uh, south yeah people get up you know this is obviously a controversial issue and people are more upset about there being fewer deer because of the panther rather than uh, them being more visible to individuals that are there. So, I mean, what's the Florida panther? You know, I'm assuming with that being such a intense project, at least for FWC, and I know FWC and UF Deer Lab are, are, are different. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't know if I'm sure they probably get some information off you guys um, to help in their, you yeah. know, in their conservation. Well, stuff, I, I actually but, work, I have a florida a north florida deer project that we're collaborating closely on uh and but the fwc actually worked with the university of georgia on the south florida deer project where they generated that data so they actually gotcha. work with universities very commonly to do this kind of work and that and gotcha. they did in that case but it was before i was in florida uh, yeah they didn't have any there was no one working on deer at, at the university of florida at the time which is why they ended up working with georgia on it yeah so but that but the fwc has their own research arm and they have a lot of great scientists doing great work on it i i haven't actually done any work in that region i just know the data really well yeah now i mean you know we we talked about you know like the predators right so bears are a very controversial subject in florida some love it, some hate it. The first time I've ever actually seen a protest against hunting um, was they allowed us to shoot bears for one weekend, like three years ago. I, I shoot, now I say that is probably six years ago. And yeah. I was at one of the public, but they had to be brought in to a specific place. They had certain stations throughout this position throughout the state that you, if you were happened to harvest a bear, you had to bring it to so they could, where biologists was stationed. And one of them was a management area that I hunt here in Northeast Florida. And it was the first time they literally blocked the gate so nobody could go in the gate. Mm -hmm. And there's virtually no bears where I live at, which is kind of funny. You know, <laughs> up here on the coast where I'm at, there's a few, don't get me wrong. But, right. you know, do you guys do much research on bear at all? Uh, so the, the, the North Florida Deer Project, uh, we're, we're working in, in uh, Osceola. And okay. there's there, and we're tracking what's happening. We're tracking what's happening to the deer. We haven't had any killed by bears that we know of, but yeah, uh, you know that that would be the research that I would have related to it. Is if you know if we end up with a lot of deer 
getting killed by bears, then that will be part of our data set. But I, yeah. I'm not tracking bears or, or anything like that. Now, now, when you're tracking, you know, what what are you doing? Are you guys catching deer and, and you know, putting a uh, putting a collar on them like you would a lot of other game? Or how does that work? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's what we're doing there is uh, putting a GPS radio tag on them. And, so do you have uh, any big bucks that you can share that information with? It's actually only females. Okay. Uh, well, actually, I take that back. That study, we are capturing, capturing some males as well. But no, I don't have any. I can share. Yeah, but he's right here. <laughs> but we are uh, more focused on the females, but uh, we are. So we're trying to get some basic population parameters about, you know, what's the survival look like of the males and females. So, uh, it's kind of unusual for me to have bucks collared, uh, which is why yeah. I immediately said no. And then I remembered no on that study. We actually do. Uh, yeah. and, and we've just initiated that study. So we don't actually have much data on them yet. Uh, it was yeah. just initiated in this year. Say a hunter was to harvest a deer that has a, collar on it which, which what do they do i mean i'm sure there's probably information on it like when you kill a duck that's yeah. got you know it's got but is there that information on a collar deer too um yeah so that's part of our study is we're trying to figure out what happens to them and that's why i was saying we don't have much data yet because we haven't gotten into a hunting season where we had them collared yet we're trying to figure out what is happening like you know what what does the male survival and the female survival look like? And part of that is, you know, probably the biggest part is whether or not they get killed by a hunter. So what we what we want the general public hunting uh, crowd to do is just treat it like any other hunt. If you see an animal and it was an animal you were going to harvest, then harvest it and then don't let the collar play a factor in it. And that will give us better data on what's going on. And we're doing this to inform the management of this game species for the hunting community. So, you know, it's important for us to get that good data. Now, question, you know, with with Osceola, and I'm very interested in this. I'm very interested in, like, what you got going on there in Osceola because Osceola's overall diversity is very unique, right? You kind of have everything. You have savanna flats. You have palmetto flats. You have big swamps. Um you know, you got that pinhook swamp area to the north, a uh, mm -hmm. lot of water, but you also have the influx of dog hunters and still hunters, mm -hmm. which is which is always a thing in Florida. You know, Florida you know has had you know in the South, right? The dog hunting in just general in, in the South is a is a tool, right? That a lot of people use. Um, some people love it, some people hate it. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested. Uh, I'm very interested to see like kind of how that study goes, and if you see anything different based upon movement, whether it's more towards nighttime in some of those dog hunting areas, or if you actually see once those dogs start rolling, if those deer that were in there try to navigate a little bit more towards that still hunting side where there's less, mm -hmm. you know, intrusive pressure. We'll say. No, that's that's part of the study. Is there have been studies on dog hunting and other places uh that have shown stuff like what you're saying that uh deer are actually in other places have been pretty resilient uh the dog hunting so like they might temporarily move out if they get chased away by a dog but then they're generally back within a day or two to wherever really the home range um, yeah 
so that's part of our study is in Osceola, we have some places where there just aren't very many deer compared to other places where we have a lot. Uh, and some of those are in the still hunt and dog hunt areas. Uh, the idea was that we need to go in and figure out, you know, basically the population level stuff that's going on, like adult survival. Uh, we want to look at phone recruitment and just look at the general trends and populations and try to figure out what factors are influencing those. And we do have deer that will be captured. We also have uh, trail camera grids. It's modeled after the South uh, Florida Deer Project. Gotcha. So the idea is that we can use all of those parameters that we get to basically build a model with the camera data set that will allow us to track the population over time, which is something we need in, in North Florida. That, that, that's what that study is designed to do, is to help us build a tool so that we can better track, you know, the population trends and understand what, you know, how to manage the the population's better there's always a bunch of them right by i know every single night when i got to go to tallahassee you know most of the time i leave early and it's still dark outside right by the way station and not yeah. the way station, the rest stop the rest stop the deer are everywhere <laughs> on the side of the road there's a little swamp head that comes like right to the back side of the rest area on yeah. the side of the interstate the deer are there all day i'm dead <laughs> so if anybody's listening who hunts osceola go home there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's a uh, you know, it's a big part of the, the community there. You know, a lot of people grew up and, and have hunted their whole life in that area. And it's a very important, important part. Uh, that's another thing about the, the dog hunting. Uh, you know, that, that is a, a community of people and it's a really family oriented thing and, and an important part of the culture. Uh, so yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting study overall i'm really excited about it and we've just we just kicked it off so we don't really have much insight yet unfortunately yeah. but uh hopefully you know in the coming years we're we're gonna have a lot of great insight about you know that whole uh system there so yeah, that's cool i mean that that's where i cut my teeth you know that's i mean osceola is where i cut my teeth hunting with my uncle so yeah uh very cool that's interesting now with florida's you know we kind of talked about you know, nutrition, we talked about some other things, but, you know, Florida being so sporadic, whether it's salt marshes or, you know, Savannah Flats, diet, you know, diet in Florida is, you know, it's very sporadic, it's very different. Um, you know, our acorns are already dropping, <laughs> you, you know, so, you know, what, you know, what would you say a deer's, you know, diet, typical diet is, and maybe, you know, proportions and percentages? Yeah, so if you, if you just look at it on a year-round basis, it's going to be dominated by leaves from plants and particularly uh it'll be a lot of shrubs and and tree vegetation uh will make it up and then we think of forbs or herbaceous broadleaf plants those were are really the bread and butter uh or not bread and butter the the ice cream so the the woody plants are the bread and butter and the and that's driven by forb availability, which is where we get into more these more aggressive habitat management approaches where we can increase the relative abundance of forbs and we can shift their diet to focus more on that higher quality resource. Uh, but in terms of percentages, I mean, it's dominated by leaves on a year-round basis. 
Now, when you're yeah. at, in particular times of the year, you might see it dominated by a particular item, like for instance, oaks. If you have a big uh, oak mass top and it's, you know, there's not much else to eat, you might see 80% of their diet for a month or two be acorns. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's in terms of the, the natural vegetation that is around, uh, you know, that you're going to see it dominated at most times of the year and at, at, you know, aggregating the whole year together by woody brows. And then uh, when forbs are available, you know, there'll be a high proportion. Uh, one thing you may notice that I did not say was grass. Uh, typically, in most populations, grass makes up a very low proportion of the diet on a yearly scale. And then the only time it really makes up a measurable amount is late, uh, you know, in the late winter stress period, uh, when we have a lot of annual grasses, native grasses that are responding, or in an agricultural setting where we have a lot of wheat or, you know, some kind of cereal grain planted. Uh, yeah. We might see that be a high proportion in those circumstances, but just in nature, deer don't eat much grass. And I think that's something that's really uh, interesting. That, you know, a lot of folks are like me. I grew up, you know, messing with cattle all the time. And uh, I think a lot of people think of them just being a wild cow, sort of. And they're really different in terms of their feeding strategy. And that's one big difference is they don't eat grass hardly at all. Uh, yeah in terms of the proportion of their diet now they're nipping on some grass here and there with and the exception is if you're planting uh you know wheat or oats you know they obviously love that and they will eat they're you know they're very attracted to it but the characteristics about that plant those plants are, are very similar <laughs> in terms of their nutritional profile so uh, that's something that's confusing to people is I ask people all the time what a deer eat just in different settings and it, grass is usually one of the first things that people bring up and uh, you know it, it just doesn't shake out as very high proportion of their diet in any population basically. Yeah yeah. I mean I, I would always have thought you know acorns when they're available and then just that natural like you know the soft green ups if possible you know the woody brows you know. Yeah. Is there any relation where they eat like so obviously in Florida we have goldberries everywhere in Northeast Florida. The goldberry bushes are absolutely everywhere. I've never actually seen a deer eat a goldberry bush. Now they're very thick, dense. Yeah. So I've seen them in them. You know what I mean? Because it, it gives them a good screen of protection for bedding. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, and but there's like everything else. There's some context to put around it. Uh, they will eat goldberry. They don't. That is not a preferred deer forage. They generally aren't walking around looking for it, but you can get into yeah. circumstances and it's probably more common in Florida than just about anywhere where the available stuff to eat is so dominated by that one species. You know, basically they don't have anything else to eat in some circumstances. And in that case, it could make up a large portion of their diet, yeah. but we'd be talking about, okay, and I'm just going to throw out some hypothetical numbers. Let's say, you might look at a diet of a deer and say, wow, it was 50% of its diet was gallberry. Well, 
that's probably in a situation where 95% of what was available for it to eat was gallberry. So it's actually avoiding that plant. It just can't not eat that and survive because there's nothing yeah. to eat. Uh, yeah. So the, another context, uh, the woody plants and, and gallberry certainly fits into this, and I've uh, collected data on it. Uh, when you've had a fire after a green up, so you've you know kind of had your plant green up, and then you go in and burn later in the season, and then you have plants re-sprouting from that, like gallberry. Uh, the nutritional quality of those re-sprouts is supercharged, and uh, yeah. you might see it actually rank a little bit higher in preference after fire. And that's one of the things that I was talking about that's really beneficial about fire is it actually transforms a lot of plant species into good food things so uh you know it actually can transform food things like that into food that, that are pref preferred foods which is pretty cool and important in our state because you know we have lots of situations like that where the dominant plant available is not a good deer food but yeah. fire, can, fire can change that uh, really quickly so uh we do see gallberry in their diet commonly but it's usually because it's so it's such a big part of what's available that they're essentially forced into eating it. Yeah. Now Florida has done a really good job with, you know, CWD control. I'll say, you know, it's, you know, I hate to say it's run rampant in a lot of parts of the state and you know, there's, I don't think there's been any cases in Florida that I know of. Yeah, um, there's no documented cases so far. What do you think that, you know, is deeming it success to? And, and, you know, what are the, you know, obviously, unfortunately, it's it's moving and it's growing in general everywhere. You know, is there anything that, you know, we're doing that we think it could prevent us from ever getting it? Or, or what do you, what kind of your thoughts on that? Well, uh, yeah, there's, so we are seeing it pop up in states. And it's really common that, when we're seeing it, it's because deer were being moved, live deer. Uh, and and sometimes, depending on where you're at and when it was, that it may have been a legal movement of deer, and sometimes it wasn't. Uh, but that that's really the the risk that we have is if we moved an infected deer because it takes time for the the uh, symptoms to develop in a deer in a live deer. Uh, the real concern for us getting it is probably centered around that. It's, yeah. uh, you know, if we moved a, an infected deer into Florida, uh, you know, that's that's how it happens in other places where, you know, just in the recent several years, we've had several southern states, all of a sudden they have CWD. And it pops up, and then we realize, oh, it's actually been here for a while. And and you know, most of those cases, they're they're tracking it back to movement of deer. Uh, and when you say movement of deer, you mean like, you know, maybe it's a small deer population which actually doesn't have very large deer, so they'll bring in some deer from. Well, I'm just gonna say like Wisconsin in to help the deer population and deer genetics. Is, yeah. is that's what you're talking about when you say deer movement? Yeah. So bringing them from a yeah somewhere else. Uh, sometimes that's what's driving that decision. People have all kinds of reasons that they're doing it, and 
you know, all kinds of contexts. But that that's the concern because you know, a place like Wisconsin, they they've got CWD established in their populations, and it could very easily, if you moved a wild deer from there to here, you could very easily move the, you know, the CWD here. Yeah. Uh, so that's the problem is you can't tell and we don't have a live like we don't have a live test that we can rely on to say yeah this is a cwd negative individual and that, yeah. that's the real concern about getting it uh when you look at mississippi and tennessee and you know, some of these states that have just recently found it that that is definitely a concern because if you look at the next nearest place that we know where it, that it occurs, like they clearly, you know, often it's, you know, many, many, many miles, like hundreds of miles even. And it's like, wait a minute now, how did this happen? Um, so, you know, that's that's a real concern. And now, is that something you think that us as hunters is just something that not just hunters, right? Just us as deer biologists and, you know, people who care about deer in general, like that's something that's just, I mean, it seems like it's almost inevitable that at some point it's going to be rampant across the country. Well, if we keep moving deer, like that's the best way to at least slow it down. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to say it's inevitable that we'll have it, but, uh, you know, that that's why the borders are closed in all the states to moving deer across yeah. states lines you know yeah. people get really upset about that and i understand but you know we're trying to protect the resource um uh, and that's one way that we can try to slow down the cwd thing the other problem yeah. with is we don't understand it it's not an organism it's a protein like it really? doesn't even make sense <laughs> you know biologically <laughs> right. so it, it's a really weird thing there, there's also research on it all the time that shows all kinds of weird capabilities that it has, like it can persist in the environment. And then uh, there's been research showing that, uh, you know, uh, it could potentially get into plants. And there's all kinds of things, and we're just like on the cusp trying to learn what what to even think about it. Yeah. One, one thing that we have going for us is there one study that suggests that a fire to uh you know uh de not decontaminate but essentially try to mitigate it in the environment yeah so, because that's one of the problems is it can just sit around in the soil that's crazy so and, and for apparently indefinitely we don't know like how it doesn't apparently degrade very easily so and, and then you start thinking about other concerns, you know, that these are kinds of things that come up and it's like, wow, okay. Uh, you know, let's say you go hunting in, in whatever state that is CWD positive and you take your boots and you step in soil and it gets caked into your, you know, the grade on your boot and then you bring them back home. Like we, you know, we don't even know if stuff like that's happening, but we know that the organism, the the organism-like thing, is can sit around and and uh, sit in the environment. So it's really, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're concerned as biologists about it is because we don't really understand it. 
or the bounds, like what we need to do. We don't really understand biologically the implications, but it certainly has a big impact on uh, some sectors of our economy. So yeah. we know that based on some of the other states and, and the regulations that, that go into place and you know the precautions that have to go into it. Like it's not something we want. Yeah. Regardless. So uh, it's yeah, it, it's really one of those things that it's the next frontier to, for us to try to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, you know, that Florida is being really proactive and trying to test a lot of deer and you know uh we're, we're trying to get up to a you know a sample size that we can reasonably uh say that it isn't here and we've never detected it here uh so you know they're trying to be proactive about that and that's good because not everywhere yeah. takes that approach yeah so uh you know that's good that we have people that care about it and we have you know we're trying to take the precautions to make sure that that it isn't a problem we have to deal with you know those are the kinds of things and a lot of self-regulation from the hunting community comes into play with that kind of stuff yeah so because like i know like you know whenever you're you bring a deer across state lines like you can't have any bone you know brain matter or any, anything like that, you know, say you were to go and you harvest a deer yeah. and, bring, and bring it back. So, well, now, yeah, a lot of those precautions are in place because we're just trying to make sure we don't bring it here on accident. Yeah, because because they're really, I mean, it's still something that's in the, you know, infinite stages on trying to figure out what it even is. Right. It's when like we, the COVID yeah, of the we, population. Yeah, and you can look up to the the upper Midwest and some of those states that have had it a long time. And like people are getting along fine that, you know, uh, there's still deer, there's still people hunting them, you know, they're, it's not like, uh, the sky is following necessarily, but it definitely yeah. it changes business a lot, <laughs> the way yeah. that we do things. And, and we don't want to have to deal with that. So yeah, no, I know it's really frustrating with hunters, especially if you it creates a headache for a lot of people and i understand that too uh yeah. that's definitely not i'm not doing any research on it i just uh am in the community and talk to the yeah. the other researchers that work on it a lot but uh you know i know enough about it to know that we don't want to deal with it so well and as a hunter yourself <laughs> you know what i mean you know i saw on your instagram you were able to kill a pretty good bull last you know bull and so it's like you had to do the same thing you know what i mean so yeah you know you're you're just as inconvenienced by it, you know, whenever you do a travel yeah. hunt as, as anybody was, else, you know. Yeah, that was super inconvenient to have to, you know, debone and get everything, you know, the whole elk. But it's, it's just a, a part of us being responsible and trying to help where we can. And that's one way exactly. we can help. So, you know, a big thing that I hear a lot in Florida and, and it's something that, you know, we deal with all the time is, is hogs. So obviously, you know, I know there's probably not as much research going into this animal that everybody hates, <laughs> but you know, you always hear about deer and hogs not coexisting very well together. I get it, but I also don't agree with it at the same time. Um, you know, I have, I have cameras that hogs come through and they might scare the deer off because it's this loud, you know, sounds you just roll a bowling ball through the swamp. But 
you need to hear people say like, "Oh, the hogs came through, and all the deer ran away." Yeah. I don't feel like there's any validity to that. Uh, have you guys done any research on that? Yeah, I actually, uh, I have done a fair amount. Uh, there are certainly some indications that that there's an antagonistic relationship. I think a, a lot of that is driven by the competition between the species. Yeah. Uh, we had, uh, we have a paper right now that's in review that we're trying to get through, you know, the, the formal process that we go through as scientists to vet it with our other scientists. Uh, so it hasn't made it through that process yet, but uh, in that, Paper, we were trying to see how do pigs affect the activity pattern of deer and a whole bunch of other species. And uh, pigs did have an effect on some other species in terms of when they were active during the day. Uh, yeah. but we didn't see that pattern with deer. Yeah. Just in general, you know, if you just went out and saturated the landscape with cameras and, and look at when you're detecting deer day and night, uh, we didn't see any relation. We, we did it across... Uh, I don't even know how many states, but a whole bunch of sites in a bunch of states where we had populations that have pigs and populations that don't have pigs. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be the best study in regards to the effect of pigs on activity patterns of wildlife uh, if we can get it, you get it through that process. But uh, according to that, we didn't see that much effect on the activity pattern of deer. Yeah, which is yeah. one of the major concerns that I hear. Uh, they definitely have uh, some issues with competition. I mean, I, I hear, uh, I can't remember who it was now, it was an old timer uh, one time told me that pigs eat all the same things deer do, they just eat it first. <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. You know, pigs are. Yeah. They, they are extremely adaptable. They're very good at what they do, and they can yep. basically take advantage of any calorie on the landscape. If it has calories in it, they eat it. Yeah. So, uh, so there's definitely a negative association between the two from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, so, and we know that, that they try to avoid each other. Another issue with pigs is that they are a reservoir for a lot of pathogens. And we don't really understand what their role is with other wildlife. Or, or you know, we know that we can get some stuff from them, right? I've had a couple of colleagues that have gotten some, you know, some sort of uh, sickness from cleaning a pig or whatever. So you should definitely... Uh, they're natural so, carriers of trichinosis, right? Yeah. Along with bears. But uh, some of this, I, I can't recall the, the actual number now, but there were, uh, there, there are dozens of things that they carry. Yeah. Uh, and some of them are fairly prevalent in our part of the world. Right. So definitely want to take precautions when you're cleaning one, you know, wear gloves. Uh, they're yeah, little, that's something I've never, you know, I'm not a very... Uh, never worn gloves while cleaning a pig before now now i think i might yeah well i, I definitely <laughs> you know i've learned enough about them to know that i'm not going to clean one without gloves on now yeah <laughs> so well, i appreciate uh, it because <laughs> i'll do the same <laughs> yeah so you know taking some precautions like that but my, my point of bringing that up is 
we know they carry some stuff that other wildlife can get and it's more problematic yeah. for, for wildlife. Uh, we just don't know that much about how much is going across. Actually, uh, some of the better work that we've seen is uh, uh, people probably know is, uh, you know, that sometimes dogs can <laughs> stuff from pigs, like dog hunting. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a concern, and and uh, we don't have enough data to really understand how much of a concern it is. But we yeah. know we know that pigs are carrying a bunch of stuff, so they definitely could be an issue. And we know obviously the reason people the people that hate them hate them because they tear up everything, you know, yeah. whether it's your ag field or your road or your food pot or whatever. Yeah, I had one knock over a feeder the other day, and then just he uh, by himself. This one big boar hog's been coming in by himself. He knocked my entire like 225 gallon metal feeder down, and then <laughs> all of his friends came and they just started pushing it around. Once the yeah. top came off, to get all the corn out. Freaking, they're yeah. smart. You know, I think everybody thinks they're kind of dumb, but they are definitely uh, they're smart. I always just tell everybody their brain is very triggered by their stomach, mm-hmm. and that's how you get, you know. Get them. That's how they can get themselves in a bad position for you to be able to harvest them. Well, awesome, man. I appreciate it, dude. This episode of the What Off Season podcast is brought to you in part by Green Acres Sporting Goods. Family operated since 1970. They are the premier archery shop in Northeast Florida. They're the only place I go to. They carry all different makes and models. They allow you to shoot them. They can build you custom arrows. And they're no slouch on firearms either. So whether you're a gun hunter, archery hunter, just a sportsman in general, go buy Green Acre Sporting Goods in Northeast Florida, and they'll take care of you as if you're family. Once again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the What Off Season podcast. Hope you found some value in today's episode. Make sure you guys are following us on Instagram to stay up to date on everything What Off Season. Mm-hmm.